on Tim Dillon's newest Patreon episode, which, A, if you're not listening to Tim Dillon, you're doing it wrong. And B, if you are listening to Tim Dillon and you're not on his Patreon, you're really doing it wrong. And he, like Joey Diaz, is just a dude, again, East Coast, Long Island. God, I miss these people sometimes. Um, (laughs) And he just doesn't give a fuck. And that's why he's blowing up. That's why he's the fucking man. And on this newest episode, he's talking about comedians who shouldn't be comedians. And he talks about that quite often. But he was making the joke. He was just like, you know, these comedians go on stage being like, have you ever been on a date and then you farted? Yeah, that's the joke, right? But then he makes the joke. He's like, they should just go home and play volleyball. (laughs) And it's like, it's so true. Uh, Growing up, you know, in the music scene, you know, seeing people playing music and like bless their hearts. But man, some people were just like, dude, put that energy into something else. Uh, maybe I was one of those people too, right? You know, here I am sitting talking to you on my fucking phone while I'm driving around picking up dogs. But what I'm also saying is, is that some people don't just don't have the self awareness of what's going on or what their capabilities are or what they might actually be good at. And the last couple of days, all I've been thinking is, I am the worst writer on the earth. Uh, uh, I am going, I'm on like draft 11 or I forget at this point of this rock and roll book. And there are days where I'm reading it and it's just like, I'm like, oh man, this is flowing. This is great. And like today I'm working on chapter two and I'm like, this fucking sucks. (laughs) Um, and I just closed my laptop Six months ago, I would have just, you know, kept on doing work and ultimately probably would have made it worse. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, I'm not going to, I'm going to pack it in. No, fuck that. I I got, I keep going. But like hearing Tim just joke about that kind of thing of just like people who are just totally unaware of any, you know, of any kind of talent. And like, I think I have some talent as a writer. But I'm going. I'm going into a world of you know heavy academia, something of which I've never been a part of, ever in my life. Um, and I don't have those pedigrees. I don't have those degrees. I don't have all you know yada yada whatever shit you want to you know put into it. But that doesn't mean I can't be just as good of a writer. And I I got a couple people coming on the podcast today. Or I'm sorry, in the, in the next week, uh, you know that weren't like traditional writers, and you know, like Janet, you know, she wasn't a traditional writer. And, you know, there are a non-traditional writers, and they had to put in the time to get really good at it. But man, some days it fucking sucks. <laughs> and like today, it's just been a, it's been a tough go. Last couple of days have been a, a pretty tough go. And like I've been wanting to dip into the other stuff I'm working on. I've been playing guitar. I've been cooking. Um, I got a lot of time. Reba had an eye surgery. I bought another fish poster. Like, things have been going on, but at the same time, you know, the writing is just hasn't, I haven't been feeling it. Um, and I, you know, on these days, I, I it's, it's always just very hard for me to not do anything at all. Um, but at the same time, you know, that time can be maybe better used, like, watching it 
a good movie and appreciating like the art in that um yeah so we'll see I'll, I'll probably write tonight nah I won't <laughs> you know what I might even put it down for a couple of days and um yeah yeah I'll let you know how that goes the next time <laughs> but enjoy this episode and please always follow at writing friction on Instagram and I realize I've been giving out the wrong Twitter handle the entire time um, and I can't figure out how to change it so I, I'm still I, I'm not good at Twitter um, but instead of at writing friction the Twitter handle is at friction writing I don't know uh, give it a follow check out the episodes and yeah enjoy this one and I'll see you all next time thanks What's going on, everyone? Uh, welcome to another episode of Writing Friction. And as always, today's guest is pretty cool. How are you doing, Idra? I'm good, Michael. How are you? Not too bad. We were just joking. You're not in a jail cell, um, although it might look like that. Where are you? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so these concrete walls there is just this little tiny room that I've been using during the pandemic mm-hmm. um, in the Gowanus to get writing done because um, of remote school and teaching remote and all of that. So, yes, it is It is very basic, but it's quiet, and that is all that matters. And that's where you're, you said you're writing there currently. Yeah, yeah, no, I teach here, I write uh, here, I eat here. This yeah. is sort of my um, cubicle of life. It's interesting. Like, to me, that's the kind of area I'm looking around and like, that's comfortable to me. I could lock myself in that place for a couple of hours, do what I need to get done and leave. Um, But I feel like some people, authors, other kind of creatives, like they need a window, you know, they need to see the scenic branches outside and they need that kind of input. Um, I like it. I'm a stark kind of person. Um, To me, it kind of gets things done. Are you working right now on like a specific kind of routine in your day? Do you go about writing same time, same place, or is it kind of sporadic with what's going on in your life? Um, I think in the pandemic, it sort of depends on, you know, how things have keep radically shifting. I mean, I live in New York, so, uh, you know, I wasn't leaving the house at all sort of earlier in the pandemic. And now it's sort of things, the numbers in New York are really low. Mm. Um, so it sort of has depended on, on, on that issue of sort of the state of the COVID uh, era um, in, in here. But um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't go looking for trees and so forth because I'm in next to the Gowanus Canal and nothing really lives here. I mean, the Gowanus Canal is sort of where, you know, sea life goes to die. So um, well, you know, <laughs> literally, literally, yeah. it's a toxic mess. So, so uh, but I mean, I, I love it here. It's sort of a desolate, but fascinating place. So mm-hmm. yeah. And it, again, so are you the kind of writer, do you write every day? I feel like, you know, I'm always asked this question. It's one of my most favorite questions to ask because it, the answers are always different. You know, some authors are very like, I don't have to write every day. Some authors are like, I need to write five hours a day or, or else I can't sleep. How do you go about, how do you go about your work? 
I wish I could uh, give, do the five hours every day, but uh, I think, you know, I heard an interview with George Saunders that um, it was actually a podcast, I think shortly after the pandemic began. And he was saying that when he wasn't writing, that his characters were continue speaking in his head. And then he realized that, you know, Saunders was saying that's sort of part of his neuroprocessing, that writing was such a intrinsic to his way of processing life that whether he wrote it down or not, his brain was just doing it almost like a bioprocessing uh, impulse. And I think I have that too. And so I, I definitely, the days I don't teach, um, I teach fiction full-time at Princeton. The other days I write, you know, the full morning. Um, and if I don't, I, I do end up writing in my head and I have to put it on my phone and save it for the next morning. Always. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I just think it is, it is my form of neuroprocessing is that I is to escape into some fictional world and having it ongoing is sort of the way that I think I get out of the confines of, of reality. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's, it's the idea of like the physical typing on the keyboard, as opposed to the yeah. ethereal idea of it just floating around, congealing in your head. So when you yeah. do put it down on paper, it's already almost done. Um, yeah. I, you know, I own a dog walking business. We were talking about that. And I have a lot of time to be alone in the woods by myself. Um, and you had made mention of your phone. I mean, so many people, so many authors, everyone that creates what we're able to do with this social media stuff aside creatively is unbelievable. And I'm always kind of just jotting things down. You know, I'm more, I've been working on a book for a couple of years now and it's able to, you know, again, if something pops in my head, I can just do a voice memo, whatever, whatever. Um, you kind of, you say you're teaching at Princeton, teaching fiction. Does it help you write better fiction? You think, do you kind of, does it muddle up the idea of fiction in your mind? Cause you're so involved with it day to day. How do you, you know, how do you go about, being creative still while you're also teaching. I think, you know, hearing myself talk is actually probably inhibiting because sometimes I hear myself giving advice that I can't take. (laughs) It can feel sort of hypocritical telling students how to free themselves up to go for broke and, you know, let it rip and take a risk. And um, I can, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to wake up yourself every day and do those risks that you might encourage your students to take. So sometimes um, it feels aspirational what I, I encourage them to do. But I think what really feeds my work is hearing them, how they read what's being written how they respond to literature, how it how it's different from where I am on sort of the continuum of thinking and reading. Um, and so I, I just really learn from them and, and their insights and their questions. So I think you get a lot out of it. It feels symbiotic, you know, that um, I hope I, I can give something to them, but I think I get as much back from them and hearing the things that um, hit them the wrong way and the things that feel to them like an oversight or that feel, you know, sort of achingly true, like what rings true for them is really fascinating to hear because it's not often the same thing that rings true for me. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I almost see it as like a boxing trainer. You know, a boxing trainer who's been boxing for 20 years, now they're in the corner, they have all this knowledge, and they still get that rush from giving it out to the people who are going to take it in. And I'd like to think, you know, if you're teaching at Princeton, your students are the, you know, are serious students about their writing, and they're just equally as passionate about learning from you, I'd imagine, as you are from teaching from them. And that kind of, I guess, explains the symbiotic idea of it all. Um, Like, do you ever, I mean, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, are you're not necessarily comparing work, but is it almost a workshop at times with your students? Do you ever have that kind of environment as opposed to like just a writer's group with your peers? Well, um, 
I, I did a really fascinating thing with a fellow writer this summer, Angie Cruz, who has an amazing novel, Dominicana. If you want to have her on the podcast, she is so sure. fascinating. Definitely. So Angie and I did a great thing that she came up with where we talked about a passage in our own work that we were stuck on. So mm-hmm. in the new novel I'm working on and the novel she's working on, and we um, explained it to each other, like what not we sort of had gotten tangled into, what fears we were having or trepidations that were causing us to sort of get stuck at that knot and how to kind of, you know, untangle it. And it was, it was really helpful to sort of articulate for each other why we got stuck, what fears were causing us to get stuck on that scene or that moment, why we couldn't get past it. And then we would just brainstorm, but we didn't read everything that we were writing to each other. We didn't give the whole manuscript. We just said, I have been stuck on this scene for X amount of time. And I suspect this may be why. And it was almost like we were like being sort of like our own witch doctors in a way, you know, like we were like self-diagnosing what Mm -hmm. ailed us. And I, it was just a really fascinating thing to do. And it was also like, you know, in the middle of this pandemic where we're all stuck in many ways, physically, emotionally, and, and, and how, how is that changing the way we write? Like, I think sometimes the release of writing during this pandemic it feels so euphoric because in so many other ways we aren't released into mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. And so that writing fiction and reading it can feel like this form of travel that has now become impossible. You know? Well, it's funny you say that. I mean, I have a couple of things, but it's funny you say that. I've been thinking more and more, and I've been talking about it on this podcast, how with so much Netflix, every possible thing, I feel like books now are almost coming back into popular conscious where now it's like you pick up a book and you're literally now you can you're in a different world now whereas opposed to i feel like you know 10 years ago where the you know the art of tv was kind of coming up and people were so excited about this kind of new art form i feel like now it's we're so numbed by it all by what we see on a screen that every time i i feel like i'm a new reader now as the time goes on um, it's interesting you say that, you know, and again, with so many friggin' distractions and all that, I, I, I'm looking at like 17 different, distra- you know, around me right now. Um, but you were talking about working with that fellow author. Is that the first time you've workshopped any material with another author or have you always done that in the past with your other stuff? I never did a sort of one-on-one conversation with a fellow author who was mid manuscript We hadn't read each other's manuscripts. We were just sort of talking about what was causing us to get stuck. Um, And I think... I think it was really helpful to think about what, why we get stuck. And I actually started thinking about when I was writing Those Who Knew, my second novel, and back to what I got stuck on in Ways to Disappear. Because working on a third novel, I'm thinking about my second and my first. I'm like realizing that there's certain, certain ways probably that I've gotten stuck with each novel I've written. And maybe um, there's some certain things and common things that are that have also gotten easier, you know? Like, I think about things like I stuck with Ways to Disappear was just sort of coming up with that connective tissue, the things that sort of get you from one um, sort of arc of events in a novel to the next or some question in the novel and how to take it a little further than you expected, how to surprise yourself so you surprise the reader and wanting to push towards something a little that feels braver, bolder, and a little more badass than you thought you could do. Yeah, no, for sure. And that changes, you know, like what what felt really uh, risky writing a first novel doesn't feel risky now working on a third one. And I felt like I really did go for broke and in those who knew in ways that I don't think I could have um, in a first novel. I just sort of, I I knew how to take a risk with what the kind of things my characters do and um, really putting them in uncomfortable positions. And when I was writing those who knew, sometimes I would come up with a scene and the characters were sort of having an argument that I wanted them to... um, 
say, say, find a way to say things that they have been holding back uh-huh. and, but without forcing them to say things that didn't feel true, you know? And, um, I would sometimes, it would make me so uncomfortable because I wouldn't be able to say that. And I found this amazing thing happen. Whereas when I, when I figured out how my characters could sort of speak their truths within the realm of the novel, I could come home, you know, and call my sister or, you know, like, uh-huh. my husband and be like, so I just want to talk about this thing <laughs> that happened 10 years ago. We didn't talk about this. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that's can be like a beautiful thing when you're working on a novel that you, you find a way to sort of articulate something that you felt, um, felt ineffable to you. Ooh. Not that I was fearful of saying that I didn't actually know what it was I was holding back. And when my characters found that ineffable thing, you know, what was causing them to feel kind of um, derailed as a person or um, sort of sidelined in, in their own life and they could find the words for it, then I could turn to someone in my life and say, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> what well, are we doing to each other? Yeah. Cool. And, you know, some writers write, you know, fictitiously, but autobiographically, right? So they're kind of writing about themselves, but through other characters, not saying that you're doing that, but you're saying that your own characters that you created were almost like therapeutic to you in a way that you're able to like, oh shit, now I realize something else about me and you. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, most people get that from other ways, um, other than that. that. Uh, you, it's, I like, I like that you use the word stuck. It's an interesting thing, right? Yeah. Some people look at being stuck as, you know, it's easy to call it writer's block or whatever. I don't like that term. I think it's kind of a weak term, honestly. Um, nothing's blocking you from writing except yourself. So writer's block is an interesting thing. You use the word stuck. Um, and you're talking about how you're able to learn from the first book then the second book. And now in the third book, you're looking back, I'm stuck here. I'm stuck there. Now I'm able to push forward. Could you kind of expunge a little more on that? I mean, were there, you know, let's take it to the first novel. Can you kind of put yourself in that mindset of when you were, I mean, was it the kind of thing where you were like, I'm a shitty writer. I shouldn't be doing this. Or was it kind of like, you know, I I have a grasp. Let me put it away for two weeks and come back to it. How did you go about working through being stuck? I think, yes, I think there was a confidence issue. With my first novel, I assumed nobody would want it. I didn't think anyone would care. You know, I was, you know, um, enormously pregnant for working on the first draft. So I had a deadline for myself, you know, and I think that I just assumed no one would care. So in some way it was really freeing. So I was like, maybe some independent press would take this book. I didn't have an agent. It was actually a friend who I taught with at Princeton who said to me, you know, I think you could go send this to an agent and several were interested. And then the, my first novel went to auction. I actually didn't think any of that would happen. I didn't come into fiction. I didn't do an MFA in fiction. I never got the memo on what a novel was supposed to be. I came into it, you know, mid thirties and um, published it in my late thirties and didn't really, I still feel like an imposter in um, the fiction world, which, you know, and I, I, I don't know if maybe that's a good thing. And then I think working on a third novel in this pan, in, during the pandemic, I do feel kind of removed from the larger world, the literary festivals I was going to be in, the readings, like so many things have fallen away that sometimes I, I do feel like I'm writing in that same void I was in with my first novel, mm-hmm. where it just doesn't, like, what literary world would this world I don't even know what world we're heading into for next week's election or what world will come a year from now or two when I finish this novel. And so in some ways, I I feel that it's both scary, terrifying, and also kind of freeing because I was like, maybe I am just writing this for a couple friends. And so that why hold back? Just 
just do the novel that feels boldest and truest and um, risk something new. And I'm just trying to stay with that. That's an interesting thing, you know, writing, you know, who are you writing it for? Yeah. At the end of the day, right, we, uh, as laborious and awful of, of a process as writing can be, like, I like to think, you know, we're writing for ourselves at the end of the day. But at the right. same time, you are writing for other people, right? So, you know, there's audiences. I'm sure, you know, as authors, you create a style. It's not like you're going to change your style completely, right? You know, you're not going to yeah, write. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good point about changing style. And I think to, to your original question about getting stuck, which I yeah. sort of got off, sorry, got off track on that. <laughs> oh, <God>. but, <laughs> I think that in all, right, both ways to disappear and those who knew have multiple points of view. And I really love writing multiple points of view because I think there's something inherently democratic about showing the blind spots that each character has, you know? So in my first novel, there's, you know, an American who thinks she's sort of, you know, the American savior who's going to come down to Brazil and solve everybody's problems is completely oblivious to all the ways she misunderstands um, her author's life, the reality of Brazil, the, you know, the ways that people trust the police. Yes. So all of that, you know, was, I was very interested Sorry, what? I was there for the la- first time last year in Brazil. It's an amazing place to visit. So, um, I mean, under Bolsonaro, I, Brazil's become pretty scary, but um, scary here too. So, <laughs> but so when I was writing that now, I was very aware of her blind spots and I was aware of the blind spots of all of the characters. And then the, the sort of way that their um, misunderstandings impact each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, that is the fascination of creating a novel is saying over time, the way that these characters' lives collide and the way they, they misapprehend each other, how's that going to play out? How will their lives be a result of that, you know? And I also did, you know, what some people call, you know, I sort of like the, the oblivious northerner, which I'm very interested in, sort of like the ways that um, in the U.S. we might be oblivious to our complicity in what the United States has done elsewhere. Okay. Huh? And um, so is my, I have a character in the second novel who also sort of thinks he's just going to be sort of like a trauma travelist and, and traveler and, and, and go to this island nation and do, learn something about um, what his government in the U.S. did on this island and maybe have some sex, too, you know? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I, yeah. do you want, all right, we're talking about sex. Are you a fan of writing about sex? Is writing about sex, because again, I've talked about this with other authors, it's kind of a slippery slope, right? Um, I'm not too involved with what you're, you know, the work you're talking about specifically, but do, if you do write about sex, is it a difficult thing to write about? Do you enjoy writing about it? As a reader, do you even like reading sex scenes? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It's an interesting yeah. thing. Because sex is such a visual thing that if you can get it on paper right, it's mind-blowing but it's very easy to get wrong. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm much more interested in the before and after of sex. Yeah, okay, and, yeah, yeah. Sort of the aftermath. So when I wanted to send this sort of, you know, um, trauma traveler from the U.S. thinking that he's doing something bold and noble and is curious, but his curiosity is a little shallow. Mm-hmm. And he goes to the island, and I think part of him is sort of like, oh, I'm a good guy. He really trusts he's a good guy. But he doesn't actually know that much about the country that he's coming from or even what his government did there. doesn't probably even want to know that much, but he really would like to, like, have some great sex. So yeah. I think my interest was not so much in writing the sex as sort of his unpacked motivations uh-huh. and seeing how they play out, you know, in the novel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Have you always been interested in writing about, you know, this style of fiction, you know, kind of the traveler 
outside of the U.S.? Is that kind of always been your jam? That's what you've always been about. Is that what you're drawn to reading wise? Um. Yeah, I think I've lived abroad. I, I lived in Chile for a long time, and I lived in Brazil, and um, my husband's from Chile. so I've been, oh, Okay, so you're South America all the way, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, so we spend part of the year with my, my with relatives and friends in Chile every year. So yeah. I've basically seen what's happened since the end of the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile, you know, from about 10 years after that until the present, and now they just have this monumental watershed vote there um, this past weekend to... Um, redo the constitution, which was made during the Pinochet dictatorship. And it's like a neoliberal disaster. And the country voted overwhelmingly to create a new constitution. Mm. So um, it was really powerful to watch that and hear from friends and family who went out to vote and the lines they waited in in order to vote and um, seeing that happen and how different a country it is now from when I lived there. So that's very much part of my days, you know, and um we're gonna. If, I don't know if we'll be able to go because of travel restrictions. Yeah. Um, but ho- hopefully, I'll be headed to Chile in a couple of weeks. So yes, I speak Spanish at home. Yeah. My ch- my kids, their first language is Spanish. So that's definitely what um, I think about a lot because I am that oblivious, you know, northerner who's learning through where friends and family elsewhere, what I wasn't taught here about yeah. what the U.S. government has done elsewhere. I stumbled into my knowledge. Well, we were talking before the podcast about Julia Phillips, right? You know Julia. And you know, yeah. she lived in Siberia, which is fucking insane. Uh, and you know, she wrote this book about you know, this living out there. It's interesting when I read books that are set in certain places, and I almost feel like the author has almost never even been there. Have you ever, have you ever read, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you're, yeah, people can't see you. You're shaking your head. Uh, and it's just, you know, yeah, it's just, uh, it's really refreshing to hear about you, you know, living in other countries people don't talk about that the idea of you know the doer good traveler i've traveled around the world and i listen i'm a straight white male i'm public enemy number one right so i go to another country and people already met automatically assume i'm the guy you're talking about right like i'm the guy who's like you know i want to learn the local knowledge and but really i don't understand you know we bomb them 30 i get it um it's interesting to hear that you know yeah you're picking up on that and you're writing about it and um it's just a cool topic to kind of break open. Uh, what do you read normally? Are you a big reader? Do you spend any part of your day reading? Some authors do, some authors don't. What are you reading right now? Um, I've, I, I think, yeah, so, so yes. I mean, it's funny. I, I think because I um, sort of read a lot of newspapers in Spanish and think of, and, and in Portuguese, and um, my days are very much, although they're here, I'm constantly talking and in conversation with people who are, who are living other realities. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm aware in some ways of how different my life was from when I first went to other countries. And so, yeah, I, I sort of think you end up writing the novels you can't find, the novels that you sort of like ache to read and can't find. So I think that's why I was interested in who that, I mean, there is the classical expat literature, right? We think of the United States. You've got like Henry James is the American. You've got Paul Bowles. You've got things. And they're, they're very much like a white gaze on that, which of course I have too. Right. But I'm hoping that somewhere in the continuum of writing novels in English from this country about who we are when we leave it and how we behave, that there's new questions for us to ask. And I'm sure after this pandemic, those questions will completely be scrambled, you know, once again. As for reading, yeah, I read a lot in other languages. Last year, I was a chair for the National Book Award, has um, an international literature prize. So most of last year, I was reading works and translations from the entire planet. Uh-huh basically every book in translation that had come out in the United States. Um, 
which was like getting to do like a literary world tour. I loved it. It was great. And um, you can even go, people on the podcast can't see, but um, all these books that have now come, I, my office is still full because some, yeah. I, we, we divided up who was going to read each book. So each book would have two readers, but some of them I didn't get to read because I wasn't assigned to them, but they look so fantastic that I kept them. So I'm still reading a lot of books. And I, I what I really love is reading these books that are set um, with a stand, with sort of aesthetic ideas that I think are very different than commercial or conventional literature in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think I love thinking that how are writers in other languages sure. writing in this new century, right? What are they doing? Yeah, creatives all over the world. You know, I'm huge, you know, I love painters. Um, and it's amazing to watch how artists in other countries even just use different colors. Um, yeah, so what you're talking about makes complete sense. Um, do you like, do you prefer reading in another language as opposed to reading it in English? As a, I, I can, you know, I speak a little bit of Spanish, but I can't read a novel in Spanish. Uh, is reading an, a novel in another language almost like a totally different experience? Or are you finding that it's similar to, you know, the English language and how we normally process stuff? Well, I mostly read English and certainly during this pandemic, but I think we're all having a hard time focusing. <laughs> it's you just to read it all is really yeah. hard. So much effort to read a novel in another language. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I mostly read, read in translation, unless it's and. But I don't even. I can't even really get books in Spanish and Portuguese right now because, like, yeah. you can't get anything from anywhere yeah. else during yeah. the pandemic. But um, last year, I published a book that was I co-translated from Persian with oh. um, a friend who um, is Iranian, and so we co-translated a book of poems of this poet Garus Abdul Malikian who lives in Tehran, and he um, does parables. And one of the reasons I ended. Um, up working because I don't speak Persian. I, I don't know anything about Persian literature, but I learned <laughs> through the book. And I those who knew is a parable. So I was writing a parable about this invented island, which in many ways was kind of an amalgam of places where I lived. It had, you know, a dash of Chile, a dash of Brazil, a little Cuba, wow. some Puerto Rico. Wow. <laughs> It was like every country I had spent time in or had read about or, you know, where the U.S. had altered its history. And I wanted to sort of look at those patterns um, of, you know, of of how our interventions had had changed these countries and the lives of artists there. And um, I um, so I worked on these parable poems that were written about Iran from an Iranian poet living in Tehran and how his parable and how the things that he was writing in these parable were sort of timeless, right? They could, they didn't refer to um, anything in his lived reality in Iran and yet they were of that. Mm -hmm. And so I learned so much working on those translations about sort of the tone and the mood of a parable and how you, you know, when I was writing those who knew, I was like, it's an island. I need to know the history of the island. I need to know who the president is. I need to know how the US was involved in dictatorship. I made up the whole history because I was sort of pooling on all these different, um, all these different way, all these different countries who had dictatorships that the U.S. had played a hand in. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really fascinating because we've intervened in Iran, you know, in egregious ways. And so, um, in a way, his parable and the country he's writing about has been shaped by U.S. interventions as well. So um, I learned a lot. And so I ended up, from what I was translating, these parables, I ended up writing this novel as a parable. We don't have a lot of parables in the U.S., you know? It's not a, it's not a big literary tradition here. We have Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, which is a parable. 
you know, and in The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood said that she pulled on experiences and things she had read while living behind the Iron Curtain. And so that everything that happens in The Handmaid's Tale happens somewhere behind the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. And all the, you know, acts and rules of, of Gilead inside Handmaid's Tale have occurred somewhere. And she just assembled a world out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I read that after writing Those Who Knew, but I was like, Margaret, what yes. is I hear you. <laughs> um, a, a new book that came out. I'm looking. I finished it recently. Um, do you read? Are you a fan of Colin McCann? Do you know he uh, let the great world spin was a book. Um, he wrote a new book called I, I'm going to mispronounce the name. A Paragon. I think it's called A Paragon. Um, takes place between you know one Israeli, one Palestinian, and they're kind of you know the story that they interlink. But reading, you know, reading about a book reading a book about it, another world far off, totally different than the everyday life Americans leave. Um, it's refreshing. It's, it's inspirational at times, even for my own writing, you know, to kind of get out of like the doldrum of just, you know, talking about a city street in San Francisco. It's kind of cool, refreshing to kind of literally take yourself out of America and then kind of put yourself back in with a new, a new set of eyes. Um, I find it refreshing. It's really rejuvenating. It also gives you a sense of relativity. You time. know? <laughs> and, 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 you know, and gratefulness and, you know, things like that. And, you know, yeah, we can go, that, 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 that's a whole other rabbit hole. But, um, yeah, that's uh, pretty cool. Um, my timer's telling me I got to go to work. Uh, okay. This has been a blast. Can you tell some people what are you doing right now? Obviously, there's no, like, events or anything going on. Um, you're big on social media. You're not into it. What's what? Do you do it? I'm on Instagram and uh, a little bit on Twitter, but mostly Instagram. I, I find that during the pandemic, seeing other people's faces and lives in that way, just the visual feels kind of soothing. It kind of opens your world. So yeah, I, I do Instagram, Idranobi. I'm on there. There's no other Idranobi, so I didn't have to come up with the name. Really? That was the only one? Really? Perfect. Well, funny, when I was doing the podcast, it took me forever to figure out a name, and I came down to three, and two of them were already taken. I was like, shit. Uh, and in order to get this, I had to put the R in parentheses, so in order to like make it work. But uh, yeah, that's just what it is. Idran, this was a blast. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, most definitely. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy New York City. And we're going to enjoy uh, San Francisco. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Later.